This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We are going to be taking a really close look today at the experience of both babies and parents who go through the NICU. There's so much to know in this conversation, and Dr. Mara Tesler-Stein is going to help us understand some parts of this. So for those of you who have had an experience with your child in the NICU or your experience through the NICU, this might resonate for you. And I'm also hopeful that for those people who haven't had these experiences, that we can understand a little bit more deeply and have more compassion and understanding for the experiences of these babies and parents. Dr. Stein is bringing a wealth of information and knowledge from her years of experience, both personally and professionally. Mara Tesler-Stein is a psychologist in private practice specializing in the emotional aspects of coping with crisis around pregnancy, parenting, and medical crisis, child development, and relationship-based and developmentally supportive care to babies and their families. She's a certified EMDR therapist, EMDR-approved consultant, and is an EMDR-approved trainer for the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. She's certified in other modalities like emotion-focused family and couple therapy, is Gottman-trained certified therapist, and continues to pursue training in clinical hypnosis and ego state therapies. She's really bringing a wealth of clinical experience and insight, along with all that she's learned from interviewing families around the world from her two books, to her EMDR basic trainings and advanced practice workshops, all of this grounded in her personal experience, which began 25 years ago and took her through infertility, twin pregnancy, prolonged hospital bed rest, the NICU, and nearly 23 years of raising NICU graduates. What I'm really excited about in our episode today is we're going to be talking a little bit more deeply about what happens for the babies in the NICU and some of the experiences they might have, and how that interplays with the experience that the parents are having. So for people who've gone through this experience, you can better understand why you might feel the way that you feel. And for those of us who are supporting parents through the NICU period, so we can understand more deeply how we can support parents and babies. So let's start our conversation and meet Dr. Mara Stein. Welcome, Mara. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Kat. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's such an honor. I love oh. your podcast. 
Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you because you are a wealth of information. And I think what you're going to share with us today is really going to help a lot of people who listen to this podcast. So yeah, I'd love for you to just start off with the work that you do. Okay. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm in private practice, but over the years I've done quite a bit in addition to my private practice work. I got into this specialty when I was already a psychologist and I was a child and adolescent specialist back then, Mm. but I was always drawn to working with trauma and with grief, but it was my own journey, my infertility, and then a twin pregnancy, preterm labor, hospital bed rest, and preterm delivery, and a NICU stay. It just really opened up for me how much was missing, Mm. um, how lacking these emotionally aware, you know, nuanced resources were for parents. It was really striking. I felt like either there's something really wrong with me or we need more here. Right. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I so appreciate that you just said that because I feel like that is such a common experience across the board for perinatal mental health and like the transition is like, is this me or what is going on here? Yeah. You know, you look and you look and you scour and my twins are almost 23. So it was quite a while ago. And so the resources were harder to find. Yeah. But it, it's awful to open a book and look for something that helps you to understand all of this mess you're feeling inside mm-hmm. and find like two paragraphs on grief and one on loss. And right. you think, oh, okay, maybe it's me. Oh, wow. Maybe I'm the problem. Yeah, it was something. And so finding this online community for parents of preemies was a lifesaver. Oh, great. Um, You found an online group? I I stumbled upon it. I was searching for resources online and there was a group called the Preemie List for Mm -hmm. parents of premature babies. And it was an international group and it was a listserv. Uh And it was the first place that I had found where parents were talking about everything that they were experiencing. And it was absolutely incredible. And it's actually out of that group and that experience that I really knew that this was the kind of work I wanted to do. It's how the book was born. The books, I should say, were born. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just realizing that it wasn't just my NICU. It wasn't just my experience or our family's experience. It was from around the world. You know, you could really hear from parents the same kinds of themes and the same kinds of struggles. Wow. So not only, you know, learning how validating though to finally it was. hear from other people. Yeah, it really was. It was one of those things that is like a good news, bad news kind of thing. Mm, sure. Where it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's, you know, it's all these people, but wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is real. This mm-hmm. is really real. And this is where I also became really passionate about teaching, writing and teaching, doing workshops, going to conferences, mm-hmm. I developed a doctoral level course. I realized it was 18 years ago now. Oh, wow. Um, just trying to dig up the syllabus because <laughs> there was nothing. You know, you get all the way through graduate school and there's nothing, not just nothing about PMADS, but nothing about trauma, certainly nothing about perinatal trauma. Oh, right. Yeah. I feel like it's gaining a little momentum now, but even, yeah. I mean, 18 years ago, sure, there was little to nothing. Yeah. <clears throat> and I got trained in EMDR actually because of this population as well because, you know, the skills and the framework that that I had brought us only so far. Wow. So you've been also doing EMDR as a practitioner for a while? 16 years. 
And I also do consultation. I'm a approved consultant and I'm also an EMDR trainer. That's like the most fun, actually, especially teaching perinatal therapists. It's like puts all my favorite things in the same room. (laughs) That's great. Really, haven't I? It's great. That's great. Yeah. And I can hear and see you're passionate about it, which just makes it so much easier for everyone else to learn. As you know, there's a lot to learn about trauma in the perinatal period, and we're going to get into some of that today. Yes. Okay, so I'd really like to understand from you, and I know there's so much to talk about here just in terms of trauma in the perinatal period in general, and then how the trauma from NICU both affects parents and infants. So we're going to kind of get into some of that today to try and understand what that is, what the trauma is for the parents who are in the NICU and what might be some of the trauma to the infant in the NICU and that interplay. Yeah. So if wherever you'd like to kind of dig in, in there, that'd be great. Okay. So you're right. It is really complicated and it's multidimensional. And one thing that I do want to emphasize from the outset is that when we look at NICU, one thing to remember is you have the population of babies born early, premature babies, Mm -hmm. and you also have full-term babies who end up in the NICU for a variety of reasons, some of them very briefly and some of them for a longer period of time. So when I talk about the impact of NICU, I'm aware that, you know, we really do have a tremendous range of the condition of the baby walking in the door, getting rolled in the door, and mm-hmm. that. And even amongst preemies, you know, baby born at 24 weeks gestation does not look, act, or respond like a baby born at 30 or 31 or 32 weeks gestation mm-hmm. or even, mm-hmm. even 27. So there is quite a range. And so, you know, there's a lot more nuance here. But when we look at just in looking at the babies, when you look at the sequela from a NICU stay, the question always is, what is the result of the NICU environment itself, Mm -hmm. things like sound, light, sleeping interrupted repeatedly, particular medications a baby might need, other medical interventions. And what is the result of prematurity itself, reasons for prematurity? For example, there might have been a uterine infection, Uh complications of prematurity like a cerebral hemorrhage or infection in the NICU, or for a full-term baby, What is the result of the reasons that they need the NICU to begin with? So it's difficult to tease out those factors. Now, that said, there is a growing body of research looking at the impact of NICU itself on that raw nervous system of those fragile newborns. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. 
So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Of the environment of those sounds and lights and whatnot that you were describing before. Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, NICUs around the world vary tremendously in things like developmentally supportive care, clustering care, things like that, that that are really designed to limit the impact on the nervous system. And some NICUs will do some of those practices, but not all of those practices. And so there's quite a bit of variability there. So, for example, compared to infants who do get individualized developmentally supportive care, infants who get traditional care, we see at higher risk of things like intraventricular hemorrhage, pneumothorax, severe BPD, bronchopulmonary dysplasia in this case, which is lung illness. They tend to stay on ventilators longer. They tend to stay in the hospital longer. Can you clarify what you mean by traditional care? Care like in the old NICUs, which are, oh. you know, they're sort of aging out there. They're needing to get renovated because they've been around for so long. <laughs> but the NICU that we were in, for example, was one enormous room. The divider down the middle was essentially the medical monitoring equipment. Oh, gosh. The room was lit with fluorescent lights. There was a loudspeaker where announcements were made. And the whole room could hear all of the announcements. All oh, of the no. Everything. Oh, gosh. Right. And so that's just the environmental example of traditional care. Now, more and more people will have their babies in a pod, maybe three or four or five or six babies to a pod, depending on the environment. But even things like training and how to developmentally support a baby when you're changing their diaper, Mm. a 24-weeker, a 25-weeker, that's an example of, you would not believe how slowly it's possible to change a diaper, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to really be containing that baby so that you don't inflict more stress while you're doing something so simple. Yeah, it really is something. You know, and so we have that, you know, just the stress of being either very tiny, Mm -hmm. not fully developed, or having some illness on one's development. So, you know, I'm sure people have heard about, you know, that we correct, we've corrected age for prematurity, Mm -hmm. you know, if a baby is born 10 weeks early, let's say three months early, when they're six months old, we talk about them being three months old, corrected age. We don't expect them to look like a six month old. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they were early. Well, we don't just correct for prematurity. We also correct for time being really sick. Mm. You know, if a baby's on a ventilator for a month, 
they're not doing much in the way of development. They're working really hard to breathe. Mm. So that energy has been redirected. Hmm. Oh, that's a lot to think about. I mean, and this is just, (laughs) we're just scraping the surface of all of the factors here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so if you think about, you know, that you have this unfinished person or this very vulnerable little person entering this NICU environment unexpectedly very often, and the way that the environment itself can scrape the nervous system raw, not just the babies, but also the parents. Mm, And so we will talk about that in a little bit about what that does potentially to the dance between the parents and the baby. Yeah. And so, you know, long-term, there's actually quite a bit that can happen after a NICU stay, after a premature birth. And it's complicated because I think people often are told, you know, go home, treat them like a quote, normal baby, Hmm. which I could spend an hour talking about that. (laughs) Yeah. That comment. But, you know, treat them like every other baby, except don't expose them to any infection. Make sure everybody's washing their hands. Mm. You know, don't let any toddlers near them. They're at risk for this, that, and the other thing. And bring them back to follow-up care for two years, which, by the way, is not nearly long enough mm. because it's at school age that very often we start to see those sort of secondary effects. Lots of preemies or babies who had NICU exposure. For both short-term and long-term stays? or is- um, Very short-term stays, less so, mm-hmm. especially when there's some element of developmental care. Mm-hmm. But we do see you know, that sensory mismatch to the infant's immature brain developed very rapidly. It can compromise their development, but there are things that we can do to mitigate that. And again, certainly as NICUs do more, that does help. Can you explain a little bit more about sensory mismatch? Yeah. So the kinds of things we were talking about a few minutes ago, the sounds, the light, the interruptions. So if a baby is sleeping and by the nurse's routine, it's time to do vitals or time for a blood draw. Mm. In the traditional nursery structure, they'll wake the baby. Mm -hmm. In a developmentally supportive structure, they won't wake the baby. They'll wait. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. Right. So if they're using a traditional model, then they are interrupting the baby's natural patterns. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. And certainly in an emergency, mm-hmm. we're talking about something completely different. I'm talking about routine tasks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So already I can hear how and why everybody might be really anxious and everybody yes. might be <laughs> There's a lot. I mean, we're getting into some details and certainly like as a parent walking into a NICU, you're not thinking of all of these factors. But this is why I think that kind of diving in and understanding these factors is important because like you said before, Mm -hmm. that whole feeling of, I don't know, is this just me that feels this way? Uh, Well, the Mm -hmm. answer here, as we can hear is is no, Mm -hmm. there's going to be some impact on you and on your baby. Exactly. And I also think that because, you know, parents walking into the NICU are shocked, they're overwhelmed, and they want nothing more than for their baby to be okay and taken care of. And so when as a parent, you have a protective instinct, very often people will hold back Mm -hmm. because the nurses are highly trained specialists. The doctors are highly trained specialists. Surely they know better. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the tendency to defer makes very good sense. But at the same time, it also can really inhibit a parent's 
growing sense of themselves as a parent to this baby. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, right. There's, I mean, just my mind went into all these like other implications that could follow because of that, which maybe we'll get yeah. into some of them, but sure. Mm-hmm. Your baby's out and learning how to be a baby and you're learning mm-hmm. how to be a parent in this environment. Right. Exactly. And they don't look and act like, particularly if they're preemies, they don't look and act like the full-term babies that you most likely have been around, whether it's mm-hmm. your own older child mm-hmm. or another family member. All kinds of little nuances that are different, but even on a basic level, most of the time they will not have yet developed the ability to coordinate things like breathing, sucking, and swallowing. Mm -hmm. So before a certain gestational age, time-wise, preemies are not going to get fed by mouth in the NICU. Right. Right. Now that's a foundational thing that we do for our babies as parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so that struggle But how do I parent? What can I do for you? You know, you need this NICU. I'm superfluous. Mm, Right. Everyone else is coming in and doing all the things to do the care or medical care. Yeah. yeah. (sighs) And very often moms in particular will say that they want to stay out of the way because that feeling of their body having betrayed their baby Mm. can be really strong. And so I've heard moms say, you know, I haven't done so well so far, so I'm going to let the medical people take care of my baby. Mm. I don't want to hurt them anymore. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And sometimes that's spoken and sometimes it's implicit. Sure. That makes sense. So there's all this external stuff happening that is already overstimulating and people might be withdrawing or just kind of disoriented by all of this. Disoriented emotionally and disoriented pragmatically you know Uh when you walk into the NICU you really need to let go of everything you thought you knew about babies Uh (laughs) about how to be a parent you know the things that might come you know relatively naturally as a parent or just anybody near a baby can have the opposite effect on a baby in the NICU you know things that we would routinely do like how you would touch your baby Mm -hmm. um that you might sing to your baby, that you might stroke your baby and rock your baby and sing to your baby at the same time. Well, that's going to induce a meltdown in a preemie. Uh-huh. It's just too much sensory input. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, unless they teach you or show you right away, sometimes a parent will reach in to touch the baby and the nurse will go, oh, no, don't do that. And oh, so that gosh. feeling of, and the nurse just wants you to not overstimulate the baby. They don't want, because, you know, with a preemie, especially, One of the ways a baby shows stress is by having apneic episodes or bradycardic episodes. Bradycardia is when the heart rate slows down. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty scary. Having the alarms go off. Oh, right. There's all the alarms too. All the alarms. So you reach in and touch your baby. Imagine, you know, you're coming into the NICU and, Mm -hmm. you know, brave parent who's like, well, that's my baby. I'm going to touch my baby. And the alarms start to go. Now you haven't really hurt your baby, but you just didn't know. Right, right. Yep. How to do it. Yeah. Oh, right. So, I mean, you're speaking a lot to how vulnerable maybe is a better word. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so you're speaking to how vulnerable the baby is, but also the parent. Yes. Um, it's extremely difficult to know how to navigate when all of everything is new. Exactly. And the thing about all of this that's really striking is that all of this is true even for a baby who's pretty stable. Mm-hmm. That's not even talking about a baby who's about entering, you know, a really rocky NICU course. Mm-hmm. You know, and then those ups and downs create, you know, other layers of trauma, grieving, 
losses, challenges about how to be part of the healthcare team, how to engage as part of the circle of care around the baby, because parents are incredibly important in that circle of care. And depending on the culture of the NICU, it can be really challenging. You know, sometimes the response is almost as if the parent is trying to take their job. And I will often tell healthcare providers, parents don't want your job. Right. Parents are doing their job. Right. But they need our help to trust that they can do that job. Right. I mean, the way I'm thinking of it as you talk about it is like, maybe this isn't the best analogy, but you're going into like another country where you don't know the language oh, yeah. and, and nobody's oh, yeah. telling you, you don't know what anybody's talking about. Absolutely. The Welcome to Holland essay, which I don't know if people are familiar with. Are you familiar with Welcome to Holland? No. no. Oh, I'll send it to you. It was written by the mom of a little girl with Down syndrome many years ago, probably 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And it uses just that analogy. You know, you think you're going on a trip to Italy and you're all ready to land. And the pilot says, we're about to descend and land in Holland. And you're like, I'm not going to Holland. I'm going to Holland. Right, right. Of course, parents of preemies say, you know, we, we wanted to write one that's more like welcome to us, Uzbekistan or, you know, Kazakhstan, because it feels more like a war zone in the NICU sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Gosh, right. So... I'm imagining then with also the pace of a NICU and, you know, the medical providers doing their work, doing their job, there's not a whole lot of time for slowing down and interpreting and explaining. There are definitely times when it is like that where, you know, and parents, parents know, you know, when something critical is happening and they step back and they're just in awe of and so deeply grateful or so grateful for the work that the nurses and the doctors are doing. And then, you know, there are long periods of time for many babies that are, you know, watching and waiting, Mm -hmm. growing, even when there's an infection or there's a complication, there's still a lot of waiting, but the ups and downs, you know, people talk about the experience of being on a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. The NICU is less like being on a roller coaster and more like being dragged behind the roller coaster. That's what people there's just this feeling of being bumped and bruised and you know, it goes on and on. So it's really real, but you know, people just plow forward. Right. Uh, getting from one day to the next is the goal. Is the goal. And you begin to look at time in micro chunks, mm-hmm. but it does make me frustrated when I see articles in the paper, you know, about like, this is a revelation. Parents of babies, the NICU have PTSD. Mm-hmm. Oh, guys, we've been talking about this for <laughs> 25 years and longer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds like for the longest time that that same line has been towed around like you have, I mean, I'm sure people get so many horrible comments like, well, you know, at least you have your baby or what some other mm-hmm. discounting type of right. way to just like, okay, well you have this kid, so you should be happy and totally mm-hmm. discount the experience and the day to day. Yeah. And go home and sleep is a favorite. All right. You know, the, it's really hard to sleep when you're hypervigilant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the process is happening for the baby in the NICU and the parent is trying to figure it out. I'm going to say just in talking through this piece, they're both potentially traumatized mm-hmm. and then trying to navigate their connection. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So here we have this baby you see a raw baby and raw parents trying so hard to get in sync with each other. It's, it's mm-hmm. so hard to get attuned to a preemie 
or to a baby who's ill because the signals are different. They often can't tolerate what, what we would naturally do. And, you know, there they are in this intensive care environment. I'm surrounded by all this high-tech equipment with really expert care. Mm -hmm. And so very often parents will hang back. Mm -hmm. They can feel really reluctant to approach their baby. I've had parents say to me, my baby doesn't need me. Mm -hmm. And of course, your baby does need you. And Mm -hmm. you need your baby. It was Val Winnicott who said, there's no such thing as a baby. You know, there's only the mother-baby pair, Mm -hmm. parent-baby pair. And so how do you navigate that? when your baby needs intensive care and you feel both grateful that the intensive care is available and also absolutely, how do I add, (laughs) how can I help my baby and be a parent to this baby? Mm -hmm. And very often I hear parents and then also healthcare providers read this hesitation as lack of attachment. Mm -hmm. And while that's possible, I am more likely to explore this tendency in terms of the protective urge, which is actually a sign of attachment. Mm. Thank you for that. I'm sure for lots of people listening, there's just like a, oh, right. For for the parents listening in particular, right? Because you're speaking to Mm -hmm. so clearly to that, like, what do I do here? And it's hard to, I'm sure, interpret your own hesitation as a protection. It's a protective urge. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I will, will redefine that vigilance or define that vigilance as an, a really important parental job. It's just that when you have a full-term healthy baby and you bring that baby home, the way that we experience that vigilance is very different mm-hmm. than if our baby is medically fragile and in intensive care. Mm-hmm. And so I'll explain that Parents will often avoid touching or caring for their medically fragile babies, not because they're not attached, but because they're so attached and that they're feeling protective and they believe that their care would either not be as good as the expert care or could even hurt their babies. Mm -hmm. And so it's a sign of deep love and attachment because you wouldn't be afraid Mm -hmm. if you didn't care deeply, if it didn't matter. Right. Absolutely. I'm just really hoping that the parents can hear that um, who've been through this experience because I, that's incredibly, I hope validating for them. I hope so too. I mean, I'm just thinking of all of the moms that I've talked with, you know, in my practice too recently, that hesitation is so real. It is. And it can feel really shameful for Mm -hmm. some people, you know, Mm -hmm. like what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And people will often not say anything. They just step back, defer, hesitate, notice something and and don't say anything. Because again, surely they must know better. And you know, very often, the the first moments of really coming to feel like a parent to your baby, are those moments when you kind of through that just a little bit. And I mean, it's one of those moments for me that I remember. And I'll share it. So my babies were about a month old. And they were still on oxygen. They were not weaning well from the oxygen. And I would spend all day in the hospital and I would just sort of shuttle between their isolates, which were right across from each other. Mm-hmm. One day, one of the babies kept um, having desaturations, which means that her oxygen level kept dropping. Now that isn't supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And it hadn't been happening. It wasn't the first day in the NICU. It was within a month. And I kept watching, watching her desat, watching her desat. And I said, her nurse, oh, what's going on? Oh, oh, it's a preemie thing. It's a preemie thing. Well, 
I've never had a preemie before. I don't know what a preemie thing is, right. um, but, she, but she hadn't been doing it. And I just had this bad, bad, bad feeling. And I asked the nurse, I asked the doctor, and she said, oh, he said, we're just going to watch. And I kept watching. And I finally went to the charge nurse and I said, could you page our attending? The way it worked was that whoever was, we were each, everyone got assigned an attending, no matter who was on call that day. Mm-hmm. So I knew that our doctor was in the hospital, the one that was overseeing their care okay. throughout their stay. Mm-hmm. So she did. And then it was change of shift. And at that time, they kicked parents out during change of shift. Oh, right. Which, again, that's another developmental thing. So I'm standing and pacing in the parent lounge. And in the doorway comes the doctor on call. And he says to me, you know, we care about your little one. We want everything to be okay. We don't want to intervene. We're just watching. We're just evaluating. And I said to him, I didn't ask you to intervene. I asked you to assess. There's something not right. And I burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And I looked up and he was gone. Mm-hmm. He ran away. Wow. And I said, okay. He said right before he said, we're doing an x-ray. I said, great. Half an hour later comes the resident. The resident. He sent his resident. And he looked at me and he said, she's got some fluid on her lungs. Mm-hmm. We're going to give her some Lasix. And I looked at him and I said, I know. And I look back on that and I think that was the first time that I really felt like her mother. Mm, That's powerful. That was really something. Yeah. Right. I was right. Yeah. I knew something. Mm -hmm. Your intuition was working. Yeah. And I had sent, given them that information and said, I'm telling you something is wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm the continuous variable here. I'm here every day. Mm -hmm. Just look. And so we as therapists and the nurses and whatever role you have with parent of a baby in the NICU, you can do is encourage parents to notice their intuitions, notice their observations, and recognize that they're part of the healthcare team. And as part of the healthcare team, then again, they don't want the nurse's job. They don't want the doctor's job. But boy, coming to the nurse and the doctor and saying, I'm noticing something. Mm -hmm. I have a bad feeling. That's a really important job. Yeah. And this is, you know, like you were saying, the stark difference between how it used to be and what we're doing now or moving towards is that, you know, doctor knows best and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, parents are in the way and all this other business. Yeah. That's a beautiful shift in how we're caring for families. It absolutely is. You know, when we were in the NICU, we were not allowed in during rounds and Uh more and more. And it's been a long discussion in NICU world about parents being present for rounds. And it's huge to be present, to listen to the report, to be part of the conversation. And it makes all the difference in that development of parental identity mm-hmm. for this baby. I am parent to this baby. There are things that I know. There are things that I do mm-hmm. that make a difference and have an impact both on the baby and perhaps sometimes on the medical care as part of the team because there are things that I can observe that others may not be in a position to observe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's really powerful. So what have you seen and what can you speak to in terms of what happens for parents and how they work through this and heal through this? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. There's a lot to say here about this, as you can imagine. Yeah. So just to frame it, remember that for parents, the sort of perinatal crisis interrupts the normal developmental twists and turns of creating a family, and it pulls them out of the normative world of friends and family. And so it makes them far more vulnerable. 
the first thing that parents lose in a perinatal crisis is their sense of safety. Mm-hmm. And then the second is their peer group. So the layers of loss and the potential layers of traumatic loss can be really nuanced and intricate depending on the particular family structure and the parent and, of course, what they come into this from before. Mm-hmm. Can I ask about the peer group? Are you speaking of like other people who are also having babies or just that they are now withdrawn from all of their supports that they had? Well, the other people who are having babies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you bring home a full-term healthy baby, as aggravating as it can be to be getting advice from every person (laughs) who notices that you've had a new baby, including perhaps your mother-in-law or your mother, depending Uh on on the situation, you have some frame of reference for what full-term healthy babies might be like. Mm-hmm. You can ask advice if you choose to. You can sure. ask your sister or your mother or your neighbor or your mm-hmm. friend, did you ever have this experience? Did you ever have that experience? Well, most people have not had the experience of standing over their two-pound baby on a warming bed mm-hmm. and not right. knowing how to touch them, how to talk to them, how to feed them once they're able to feed. Right. This is speaking to the broader, like, who do I turn to? Yeah. Uh, And and who's like me? Who's like me? Mm -hmm. Who's like me? Where are my people? Where are the other people who understand what it means to be worried about these particular things? Mm -hmm. To be worried about growth. To be worried about developmental milestones Mm. when the baby comes home. To be worried, you know, about medical tests to struggle to understand this whole new vocabulary, mm-hmm. to have to figure out as we did, how do you manage twins, two apnea monitors and two oxygen tanks at home? Uh-huh. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. And I mean, I'm sort of thinking too, that you're also trying to figure this out while you're dealing with your anxiety or the trauma or the mental emotional piece of this and exactly how how much heaviness that could be, how hard it might be even to just think through stuff like this. Absolutely. You know, the alarm system that gets turned on during a perinatal crisis. And for some moms, it happens if they get hospitalized on bed rest. Mm -hmm. with complications, Mm -hmm. or if they're in and out of the hospital trying to prolong the pregnancy. It can happen sometimes much more quickly than that. Mm -hmm. You know, a precipitous birth, all of a sudden, boom, you know, we have a crash C-section, there we go. And so if parents are experiencing this sort of classical PTSD symptoms, that also interferes because you don't, as much as you don't feel like yourself, in the NICU because it's so disorienting, you really don't feel like yourself when you're symptomatic with PTSD. Right. You can't trust your body the way that you normally would. You never know what's going to be a trigger. Mm-hmm. The sounds, the smells, that sort of thing. Sure. That's quite a lot to navigate. And then, you know, there's the NICU uh, mm-hmm. environment. Then I'm just thinking, you know, the going to home. Yeah. And whatever's going on there, going back and forth between those two. Yeah. That's its own thing. Yeah. And then bringing a baby home. And there's so many transitions and processes that are happening all the time. Absolutely. And the back and forth to the NICU when the baby is there is stressful. And then it becomes very often just the routine. The most stressful part for a lot of people is the time in between, Mm -hmm. you know, between 
when you're not there, when you don't have the nurse right there to ask a question to. Mm-hmm. But discharge and homecoming can be terrifying. Sure. You know, here your baby has just been in intensive care. Now, there's very often a step down, but it's still intensive care. Mm-hmm. They're still on the monitors. They still have a nurse caring for them. And then, you know, when they're ready, you know, they test out the car seat and they put them in the car seat and they say, bye. And, you know, you walk out and you look behind you like, are they really going to let us leave? With this baby? Yeah, like, are, they, are they for real? Uh-huh. <laughs> you hear that too? Yeah. It's wild. And then this fear of like, okay, they've had eyes on them for however many weeks it's been, however many months it's been. Mm-hmm. And now I'm supposed to take care of them? Like, right. how do you know I'm not going to screw this up? Right, right. How am I supposed to sleep? How am I supposed to sleep? And so part of this, you know, comes out of the stress and anxiety and trauma of the NICU environment. And part of it is, I think the environment creates its own expectations. Uh Right, right. Sure. That makes sense. So, you know, there's like two different kinds of aftermath of NICU. One is just the way your nerves are just, you're jumpy, jumpy, Mm -hmm. maybe full-blown PTSD, maybe not, but still some, you know, symptomatic in some way very often. Mm -hmm. I'm worried, checking, checking again, for sure. But then how could it be that it's okay to put my baby down to sleep and close the door? Right. Right? Like the mismatch, Mm -hmm. there isn't much transition there, if at all. That mismatch of, no, we can trust that your baby will continue to breathe. We can trust Mm -hmm. that your baby is going to be okay or else we wouldn't have sent them home. Mm -hmm. But that may not feel true yet. Right. So that transition takes however long it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, And for some parents, I will say, they're they're like, we're home. It's good. We're happy. And that part's okay. And then they try feeding a baby and then a whole other thing happens. Mm -hmm. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. 
Right. So considering that, obviously we can talk about this for days. There's a lot to know. Thinking really specifically about the parents Mm -hmm. who are listening and, you know, trying to navigate this themselves right now. Yeah. What have you seen in terms of healing and being able to get through this? Yeah. What helps? Okay. So what I think is most important is that we see parents and that they get to be seen as whole human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so easy to forget that life could have been really normal for people before this happened. Yeah. You know, this could have been, you know, people functioning really pretty well and doing the normal things of life. And then the eyes that are on the parents very often are also concerned, anxious, evaluating, and so on. And so I think that we who are supporting parents, whether parent, grandparent, family member, healthcare provider, is that we only see the disarray and don't see the competence that's growing. And we have to see Hmm. that both are happening simultaneously. Sometimes they oscillate. But to remember, this is a really hard time you know, I see you. I see you there. This person that is trying to find your way out of the rubble from the earthquake. Yeah. And that you have in there everything you're going to need and that you need now to be the parent that you want to be for this baby. Whether it's raw materials that are going to develop, like for any parent. Sure. Whether it's numbness that's temporarily protecting you from what might be unbearable in this moment. Mm-hmm to look at you and say, I'm with you and I'm not afraid of your fear and I'm not afraid of your anger and I'm not afraid of your grief and I'm not afraid of your trauma because mm-hmm. all of that makes sense. Right. And you are not those things. You are experiencing those things and they are real mm-hmm. and they will impact you because how could they not? Right. And of course they will and they should because it matters. Right. And so you will be transformed and that's a process Mm -hmm. and that's really cool. And I'm going to walk with you as you walk this road. Well, that's way way more empowering than what I Mm -hmm. hear a lot of people experience. Yeah. 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 I I hope that people can, you know, I'm hoping that people who support those who have had this experience can hear that specifically, that, oh, that's empowering. Yeah. that, That parents' reactions in this crisis don't reflect their overall capabilities. I mean, they need to know that we can see past the fragmentation, that we don't see them as incompetent when they're terrified. Mm -hmm. We don't see them as hostile or not deserving our care and nurturing when they're angry. And that we don't see them as helpless when they're shocked, when they're frozen. Right. And there's a parallel process here because the more that we, and when I say we, I mean all of us, whether we're healthcare providers or friends or family members or whoever we are, that if we can provide relationship-based, developmentally supportive care to parents, helping to support their development as parents to this baby, Mm -hmm. we see them whole, even when they're struggling. This gives them more and more of an ability to see their baby whole and not just see their baby as a list of medical Mm -hmm. complications or developmental challenges. Mm -hmm. Find the baby in there. Oh, yeah, this is so empowering and such vital information. And, you know, 
if we can continue to wrap up our conversation here, this is again, one small part of a much bigger conversation on other hopeful messages, other things Mm -hmm. that you think are empowering for parents. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, foundationally, parents need their strengths and capabilities, even if they're only just emerging, to be mirrored and recognized and held and nourished and nurtured. And these are the kinds of things that really help parents in their recovery, in their development, to hear that their longings for things to be normal make sense. Mm -hmm. And along with this, that they need to know that by wishing, for example, their baby didn't need intensive care or that, you know, in our case, for example, that they could wean off the oxygen, you know, like Mm -hmm. could it just be normal? Could our loving arms be enough, you know, to to be careful about calling something like that expectations because Uh it's really longings. It's really hopes. Mm -hmm. And so when you name it like that, it pulls on and helps to strengthen that quality and those feelings in the parent supporting and welcoming to whatever extent parents have them, their desire to learn and speak the medical and developmental language and to bring that to their healthcare providers, to support them in developing a role as active partners in their child's healthcare team. Mm -hmm. Because when you do that, you convey your confidence that their state of emotional disarray, wherever they're at at that point, isn't permanent. Because that's the thing that we're afraid of, of course, is that the world has fallen to pieces, that we as parents have fallen to pieces, and that those pieces are lost. They need to know that we know that they're still in there Mm -hmm. and that we can join with them even when they're feeling fragmented and then also when they're feeling more competent. Right. That's so important. I'm just like going through some things that I've heard from clients recently Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. mostly they're getting the opposite of this. Like just Mm -hmm. people are discounting them a lot and gosh, if we could just really stick with this mirroring and the developmental piece that you're describing, how much better it would be for the parents and probably baby too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because what happens then is that parents are increasingly able to interact with more fluidity and more calm confidence with their baby. Mm -hmm. They're not scared of themselves as much and they're not scared of their baby as much. Yeah. That's so important. And so Learning how to do the things that, you know, you would think of as like what parents of full-term healthy babies get to do, what feels like normal, mm-hmm. that drive is a healthy, normal drive. And it coexists with that desire also to modify and change whatever you need to so that this works for your baby. And again, those coexist. And so the desire, for example, to be able to nurse. This is one of the big ones, Mm -hmm. you know, how to get a baby to breast from the NICU. You know, that desire is normal, healthy desire. Mm -hmm. And that growing alongside that growing awareness of like, this is more complicated. Mm -hmm. And it's complicated for a lot of full-term healthy babies. So just imagine. Right. (laughs) Right. And that parent's desire to retain a sense of competence is also healthy to feel like, well, I do know something and here's what I'm observing and here's what I know about my baby and to make space, to hold space for all of that emerging competence and recognition of attachment urges that look different when your baby is in NICU or discharged from NICU and to know that those moments of grieving 
the triggers, the post-traumatic triggers, do not invalidate the strengths, the coherence that's also there, the cohesiveness rather, that is also there for parents. And this is what's hard is you're holding both. Mm -hmm. You're holding both the parent and the baby is an example of that, you know. Baby may have an immature nervous system, but, you know, just be needing to grow. Or baby might be full term with a medical condition that needs care. So baby also has a variety of pieces that they bring to the table. And so how do you not hyper-focus on one? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So there's all these parallels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of what you're describing, I, I appreciate you so much for going into depth in some of these places where we can, you know, for those of people who've experienced this and for people who haven't, mm-hmm. to find a place of compassion and understanding for themselves yeah. and for others. I mean, that's key here and all of what I hear you saying. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Compassion and not losing sight of the whole person. It happens in these really subtle ways in the medical system in particular. When I was hospitalized, I was hospitalized really suddenly. I'd gone in for a regular ultrasound and check and I was in preterm labor. I was already starting to efface and dilate and they sent me up to labor and delivery, put me on a monitor, put me on magnesium sulfate. And I thought, oh, how long will I be here? <laughs> you know, can, you know, do I need to cancel all of my appointments for today? And the nurse is like, uh-huh. And I had been teaching graduate students. I was in the middle of a semester. Oh and weeks and weeks go by, and, I, and you know, I didn't hear anything from my students. And then about five weeks into my six-week hospitalized bed rest, a nurse hands me a card, and it's from my students. And I looked at the postmark, and it was easily a month earlier. And I looked at her, and she said to me, nobody could figure out who Dr. Stein was because oh. I was a patient. Yikes. And there you go, <laughs> right? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this, you know, blending of person, professional person, person in the world, and then mother, father, mm-hmm. which may be just emerging. They both matter. They both count. Yeah, they do. Well, thank you so much for all of this information. And when we wrap up, I'm going to point people to the books that you have are a wealth of information also. That- Any pages. Yeah. I was like, oh my goodness. When I saw that book, it is hundreds of pages and such a huge resource to everyone. So I'll I'll give everyone that information. And yeah, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your passion for this work. I really appreciate you helping us understand this more deeply. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mara, for coming on. For those of you who are interested in getting in touch with Mara, you can go to www.docmara.com. I want to make sure to give you those two books that she's written. The first is Parenting Your Premature Baby and Child, The Emotional Journey. And the other is Intensive Parenting, Surviving the Journey Through the NICU. These are great books, really supportive if you are trying to understand and navigate your experience through this and are supporting parents through this. Hopefully you can check out those books and get these great resources to support you or the people you're supporting. If this is your first time joining us on the Mom and Mind podcast, please pop on over to momandmind.com to find links to all of our social media or links to where you can listen to the podcast and subscribe so you can get each of these episodes downloaded to you directly. Mom and Mind is also part of the Parents on Demand network where you can find a lot of early parenting podcasts to support you in your journey. So glad you could join us today. Until next time. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because, let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.